Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'm Ed Yaka, the Director of Communications and Public Policy. Illinois still has one of the most restrictive name change laws in the country. The current law denies anyone convicted of a felony the ability to legally change their name for 10 years after their sentence and any probation is complete. We are one of only eight states that has such a restrictive law. This law has an especially harmful impact on communities who face mistreatment and discrimination, including survivors of human trafficking, transgender individuals, and poor people of color who occupy one or both of those identities. Survivors of human trafficking, for example, often are forced into criminal activity risking arrest. But this law bars these survivors from being able to change their names, making them more likely to be found by those who abuse them in the first instance. As for transgender people convicted of a felony, the law forces them to navigate through the world with wrong identity documents. This lack of alignment holds people back after their involvement in the criminal legal system. When the House and Senate meet in October 2021 for Illinois' veto session, the ACLU of Illinois will be working with a coalition of organizations to pass House Bill 2542 through the Senate and get it signed into law. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about these efforts with advocates trying to change this law in Springfield. For this discussion, we're joined by two guests. Aisha Love, she, her pronouns, is a transgender activist in Chicago. She is currently unable to legally change her name under this harsh Illinois law. And Avi Rudnick, he, they pronouns, is a lawyer and the director of Scattered Site Housing at Chicago House and a board member of the Transformative Justice Law Project of Illinois Name Change Mobilization which helps transgender people change their names. Aisha and Avi, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. So Aisha, you've actually had to wrestle with this situation of presenting an identification card that doesn't reflect your identity. I wonder if you could just share one of those experiences and just talk a little bit about what that's like. For me, I think the experience started when I was released from prison, a first degree attempt. And when I was released, I ended up catching a felony and I, having a felony in my background. I was not able to get out of prison and to be able to get my name legally changed. So, and the name I identify as is a name that everyone sees and knows me as. And not being able to live as that particular person, it actually kind of throws my life in the kind of hoops where I'm kind of going places and trying to show this is who I am, but I have to actually legally identify as this particular person which I no longer identify as so it's kind of like I'm been having like the flex really more so of the lifestyle of really not being able to be legally the person that I say I am or identify as so what's an example of a place where you go or an example of an experience that you've had where you've you've had that difficulty getting out of prison I was staying in the halfway house at first and then as I had to move forward. I had to kind of like find my own apartment and do things like that. Normally things as getting out of prison. And I keep translating prison life because that's where you start over and you're trying to get everything reestablished, I'm saying, in your life. And I think that was the point for me where I kind of had to hit 
and it hit reality where I was like, okay, well, I have to find an apartment. And being as though the name that I identify as, which I have as emails and I have as who I reference myself as, is being said in certain times of phone calls and things like that. But legally on paper, it shows differently. So that's where the conflict of interest and things happened when I was looking for an apartment and I wasn't able to kind of like, you know, get the apartment because of the lady prejudged me based off the name that she had seen that was on email, but on identifying as far as legally wise, it was something else. So she was like, oh, so where are you? you know, and I had to. And you have to out yourself and explain yourself wherever you go then. Well, yeah, so she was kind of confused on what was the whole issue of why the name is two different individuals. One is the aliases or is this the real? And it was kind of the conflict of now I have to explain, oh, well, I'm a transgender woman. And then her concept of how she prejudge or see trans people in her mindset tend to flare up. They'd be like, oh, you know what? I'm going to pass with trying to lease you this apartment. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. So that was the whole issue of probably not wanting to lease the apartment to me. How does that, in that experience, in that moment, how does that make you feel? Um, I think that's a life feeling that I had to endure throughout just being trans in general. Like, So I think sometimes it's a life thing you have to take on a take on experience, I think in a sense, because it's something sometimes people look at you and prejudge you. So you have to kind of know how to go about dealing with that. I think, and I challenge that now because of the situation from what caused me to go to prison, which I was looked at as being discriminated against. And the young man ended up kind of like, you know, I, I, I allow him to take me out of my character. So mm-hmm. what I do now is I try to uphold it in a sense, but sometimes it'd be a, to a point where it's, it's bothering. So sometimes you have to sometimes hold yourself and not do something that's unnorm where a person feel like, well, I only just ask them because I'm not aware. And that's the unbothering situations where it tend to kind of flare up at times where you kind of, you don't want to explain yourself. Let's take a step back for a moment. What is the current law in terms of someone changing their name and who gets barred from changing their name under under the law? The current law is is actually one of the most restrictive laws in the country. And what it effectively does is it it includes a 10-year ban for anyone who has been convicted of a felony in Illinois, any type of felony. It doesn't matter what kind. And that 10-year ban, when people first hear it, they might think a 10-year ban from the date of a conviction. But it's really important for people to know that it's actually a 10-year ban from the date that the case is discharged. So that means you can can get convicted of a a felony, go to prison at the age of, let's say, 20 years old or 21 years old, maybe you're in prison for 10 years, you get out of prison maybe when you're 30, then maybe you're on parole for another five years after that. So now we're at the 35-year-old mark, and then you've got 10 years from that point. And it follows you through the parole period as well. Yes, so your case has to be completely discharged from probation gotcha. or or parole or supervised release. Then on top of that, there is an actual complete lifetime ban for anyone who has been convicted of a crime of identity theft or anyone who is required to comply with the sex offender registry. So that means that you can never ever get your name changed as long as you live. So that's current law as it stands. There's other aspects of the law, but they're not indicated here in this conversation. In your work with people who are seeking to change their names, is there a group of convictions that people have faced that that are the kinds of things that you're generally seeing that have resulted in them being unable to 
participate in the name change process. Yes, but I also just want to state too that regardless of the type of charge that somebody has, that TJLP, we don't believe there should be a restriction list of that. But what we often see in trans communities is that folks are actually in some ways forced based on the barriers that they're facing to engage in survival behaviors. And those survival behaviors are criminalized. I don't even like to call them survival crimes because so often people are doing what they have to do to survive and then they're being criminalized for it. So what we see a lot is retail theft. So you can get a felony for retail theft and then 10, 10 years, right? That's 10 years. You can't get your name changed, but maybe you were stealing to survive. We see the laws around sex work in Illinois have changed. So the prostitution laws used to be very strict around if you got a certain number of prostitution misdemeanors, your next one would automatically become a felony. And what we know is that so many trans folks, especially trans women of color, have to engage in sex work to survive. In addition to that, even though the law was changed, which is great, they didn't grandfather anybody in. So if you had that felony conviction, even though the laws changed, they weren't like, oh, well, we changed the law because we recognized that it, that it wasn't a just law, but you're still going to be penalized for that. You know, somebody could write a check. They're struggling. You're just trying to make ends meet. You make a decision. Maybe you make the wrong decision or you make the best decision for you at that time. You write a bad check, commit some sort of fraud around writing a check. And then that could be a lifetime ban. And we should know that a lot of those kinds of charges are things where you would never serve 10 years. So this ban can actually be longer than the charge itself. Yes, absolutely. So Aisha, what was your experience with this? I think I had to wait after my parole because I did a plea bargain, which was a year was done with the double wit. And then that was the market of when I can wait the 10 year mark of being able to get my name changed. So it was like, I think I have maybe six, four years. So that would mean that if we don't change this law, Aisha cannot change her name for six more years. If I can interject, I just, I think this is something that people need to to understand that this is an additional penalty for trans people. Most people don't need to get their names changed to live authentically in the world and to have self-determination and to be able to be safe with getting a job or housing or trying to go to school because there's so much transphobia and so much risk of violence. So essentially, we're creating an additional penalty. Isha, Isha, regardless of whatever happened, Isha did what was required of her and then is still being penalized. Still being penalized. I totally agree with what Abby's saying as well. I think in a sense where that's something that we have to consistently have to face and have to deal with, you know, being penalized after penalized after penalized. And it's something that we have to continue to keep going on. And just, I guess, it's barriers that we constantly have to be faced. One barrier we may get through and another one come. I just sometimes deal with it, but then I feel like sometimes I shouldn't have to deal with these type of consequences where I'm giving out one thing and I'm still having to be hold back on another doesn't allow me to move forward the way I want to move forward in life in a comfortable way. Like I have to move forward in a more cautious way again, where I'm like got my head on my shoulder where I don't want to go in work fields. 
you know, want to be in places where I know that that's a place where it can be called out or it could be something I have to explain where I don't feel like I should have to explain certain things where if this is my life and this is what I'm doing in my personal space, why should I have to explain legally? One other thing, just because listeners may be unaware of this, for someone who isn't facing this ban, how does the name change process function? The name change process, and it, it has changed slightly during COVID, um, just because everything with the courts everything has changed has. during COVID. <laughs> um, but essentially what you do is you have to fill out some paperwork. You file that paperwork with the court. Most instances, the court requires that someone has to publish their name change, which for transgender people, again, is another burden because essentially in that publication process, people are being forced to come out publicly because the publication lists your current legal name, the name that you're changing your name to, the date and time of your court date and exactly where you're going to be at that like that you're so basically you're saying hey i'm trans and i'm going to be right here at this date and time for my hearing you know and this is really based in some archaic practices around people changing their names to avoid editors we know with the, we're in the the era of social security numbers you nobody can get away from their their name from their identity based on just a name change anymore so you have to publish minors anyone under the age of 18 does not have to publish and then you have to wait you know it used to be they would just give you an eight-week waiting period before you're hearing to allow for that publication to process because it has to be published for three consecutive weeks um, in the newspaper and then after you've done all of that, then you have to go in front of a judge. You go in front of a judge. Oh, and I left one thing out. The law was actually changed to make it even more restrictive for trans people a few years ago when an extra requirement was added that said that every single name change would get sent to the state police and the state's attorney. That means even babies who are getting their names changed are, are being sent to the state police and state attorney for them to run a background check to make sure that the state police and the state's attorney do not want to object. So we've got that extra time frame added there of the 30 days. So even minors right now who don't have to publish still have to wait because of the background check. Now it's taking 90 days because the courts have such a huge uh, docket of name changes. Then you go in front of a judge. The judge reviews all of the documents. If the state's attorney or state police would want to object, that's when they would do it. And, and the judge looks over everything, makes sure everything's in order and grants the name change. So that's the general process, but it okay. is confusing, <laughs> you know. And complicated and right. expensive in terms of publishing. It is expensive, yep. Yeah. Publications so range between like 90 to $190 in this area. So let's talk about House Bill 2452, which we should say during the regular session got 87 out of 119 votes, a very significant bipartisan majority. And we're hoping, obviously, that the vote will come in the Senate to approve this in the veto session in October. So I wonder just what the bill would do and how does it help folks like Isha? So the bill would absolutely help folks like in Isha's situation. It would remove the lifetime bans. And it would also remove the 10-year ban. Now, there would still be an opportunity 
for the state's attorney or the state of basically to come forward and object to a name change based on a background check, but it wouldn't be an outright ban. So there'd be an opportunity essentially for each case to be heard on its individual circumstances. The other thing that it would do, the carve-outs created. There are carve-outs, not just for, for folks who are transgender, but there would be carve-outs for people based on marriage, based on religious beliefs, victims of trafficking, and 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 then the gender-related identity. So that's essentially how it works, is we're creating these carve-outs. The bill also includes a stipulation for publication as well, so that for folks who are transgender, or I believe anyone um, experiencing domestic violence, they would have an opportunity to waive the publication. Now, there currently is a waiver component in the existing statute, but it's pretty strict and it's much harder for people to get easier, essentially, to get the publication waiver. You wouldn't have to show so much evidence to a judge about why you need the waiver. So, Aisha, I'm going to take you back to something in the spring that you got to experience, which was testifying before a House committee about this bill before it passed. What would you want to say to the senators who are going to consider this? What is it that they should know about why this bill is important? Seeing that these situations are actually affecting individuals, I'm saying in real life. So I think more so, I think the impacts are more so the reason of why a lot of the senators should take this bill and kind of can more so bring a light or shine more so a light to the situation. So I think conversation that we had with House, that was just something I felt like just bringing my truth in the situation of what I've been impacted by was something that was just needed. Like if they don't understand who is impacted by it, then they really don't really have a concept of believing that this can actually be something that they should just look over. This bill something they can like actually push for, help the change of what's going on within Illinois. So, Avi, it feels to me like the one pushback that came in the House, the one pushback we've heard is around this issue of safety and security and this notion somehow that if I change my name and I have a record, I just, I get a blank slate. I can start all over again. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this, you know, we saw a lot of shift in the 90s around how we talk about public safety. And like you said, I, I actually think the opposite is actually true um, in this circumstance that by allowing folks to get their names changed, that there's not actually going to be a risk to public safety and that by denying people name changes that we're actually creating more of a risk to public safety because we're creating more barriers to self-determination, which is then forcing people to do things that they wouldn't normally do have to do or creating so much trauma that people are having trauma responses and we're, we're, we're actually um, increasing the risk to public safety. And so what really happens, right? I mean, we all know how digital technology works these days in terms of social security numbers. Nobody, nobody can escape social security number. If somebody changes their name, their record still follows them. When, when you look at a, a criminal record, or if you pull up a rap sheet, you'll see everybody's, they'll see all the aliases that fall under that. People have fingerprint numbers, there's FBI numbers, there's their IR numbers. I mean, the list, the list of numbers that people have, I'm not even trying to be funny. I mean, it is long. I can search based on so many different numbers that have nothing to do with the person's name because all of it is tied in, all of it's connected. 
If somebody's required to comply with the sex offender registry, they are required to report so many details of their lives constantly. You can't escape it. And and you can be found there. Mm-hmm. It is very hard to escape from any sort of creditors, law enforcement, anything. It's so hard to, to escape, especially when you have no resources. So, and, and the other thing I wonder if you could just talk about for a minute, and you mentioned both of these and underscore is there is both a process where the state's attorney's office reviews this. So mm-hmm. I presume they're going to look for someone that they think may be changing their name for nefarious purposes. And at the end of the day, there's a judge, right? Who's making a decision with someone standing in front of them or virtually standing in front of them that's going to determine whether or not this is an appropriate thing to do for public safety. Absolutely. This gives judges discretion. It still gives the state's attorney um, and state police an opportunity to object based on public safety grounds. And then they would have to go in and argue their case in front of a judge. And that judge would decide risk of taking away someone's self-determination is outweighed by the public safety risk, which is pretty significant when you think about it. I mean, somebody's ability to change their name is so central. People can walk into the court and change their name to almost any, to almost anything, mm-hmm. you know, and yet we're going to restrict people based on unfounded public safety concerns. Aisha, I wonder if you'll just indulge me for a moment. I want you to imagine for just a moment that this bill passes in October. It is now law and you can begin this process, change your name legally. What would that mean to your life? It will first start a new life. I think that because my life now has been put on a standstill. This bill not being able to kind of proceed me to move forward the way I want to live comfortably in life. Um, so I would say that being first will be a start of life. And then as for many others that's faced with the same situation like myself, it will maybe start a new life for them to feel comfortable and not really have that, uh, that voided. Because this part of life is like a void of not being able to live and be who you are as a person in society. And you have a void when you're not being able to live your authentic self and be able to live that way legally as well. It was, that would definitely be a blessing for me and many other people that are faced with these issues. And Avi, I wonder if you have any sense of how many people are impacted by this. I mean, we've talked about the kind of the over-policing of certain populations and and the result being them being impacted by this law. I wonder from your just your work and your sense of it, what, what do you think in terms of the number of people who would be impacted by being able to change this in Illinois? You know, we, we've actually been talking about this in preparation for the hope that this bill is going to pass because we know we're going to get a pretty big influx of people who are going to be coming and, and asking for, for help with their name changes. I think that it's really hard to track a very specific number because one, there's so many trans people that are incarcerated that we're not tracking. So we don't actually know the full impact. But what we know is that we turn away people every single month at the name change mobilization who are not able to get their names changed. And it was even more so at our earlier days when people didn't really know the laws as much and there wasn't as much you know, chatter on the streets about it. But a lot of people, sadly, I think don't even try. So we might not even interface with those folks because of 
because they don't come because they know that they're not eligible. But what we do know is that trans women of color are disproportionately impacted by the criminal legal system. We know that there are high rates of felonies and Isha has something to interject. I was going to say, when you're saying that in a sense, I think that it definitely do now highlight the individuals now that may be getting out of prison that may have this injustice where, okay, if I am going to be a felon right now and I maybe want to get my name changed, I can actually now go through the process of looking at Isha as 10 plaintiffs that have stepped before it and kind of had this issue. So I think it does now highlight for those individuals to now say, hey, I'm saying I need the help or I need the assistance now because I am a felon. We end up having to have really heartbreaking conversations with folks about why they can't get their name changed. And people have experienced so much trauma that I've literally had folks not even believe me when I tell them they can't get their names changed. Like it's so, it's so hard for people to process that there would be this barrier to them trying to access such a basic level of self-determination. And especially for trans folks who it's a legitimate safety issue. It just compounds on people's trauma that they've experienced. So it's not just about a name change. It, It creates a ripple effect in people's lives. Really true as well. The ripple effect does kind of go on because you have trauma on top of just a, a, a mass of trauma that mm-hmm. react. Like that's why I was trying to use that example on my mm-hmm. situation. I had trauma of already being impacted mm-hmm. as a lifestyle I chose. And that was the barrier that I went of going to prison of being infected by that. You know, like that's the trauma that I had to deal with. So now I'm learning a different way to deal with trauma and not let the trauma affect me as much, but that shouldn't be what I should have to deal with and have to do. So yeah. And the reality too, what Isha is just saying is that when we talk about trauma, people are more likely to engage in behaviors that are going to lead to more criminalization when you're constantly in a trauma response state. <laughs> That's exactly what we said. Exactly. That's definitely going to be my question. Does that trauma and does that inability, Isha, I'm going to use your words to create a new life, to start over? Does well, it doesn't. I think it, it it allows a new life to uh, prevail, but it doesn't start it to kind of really go over because you still have trauma on top of trauma, but it's just an uh, aspect of that trauma being removed a little bit. Like this will open up a, a trauma effect where you don't have to kind of go through like that small, because it's always going to be trauma, a trauma of House Bill 2542 will be a barrier that a lot of people would now, that's dealing with the trauma of like probably being able to get their name changed. They wouldn't have to be so affected by it because and move forward with life, but I can't because it's like a, a standstill for me but for those that maybe I'm felon and just in prison and try to get out they have a time frame where they now can say okay I see she's got this done so now I have the time frame to get this out so I don't have to go through the ends of eye to what she had to go through yeah, yeah. it's one less it's one less barrier right yeah. it's just one less that's what I was trying to base yeah. yeah. it's not really a big a new life barrier no so like one of the things we want our criminal legal system to do is to hold people accountable, but then to provide an opportunity for rehabilitation. And this feels to me like just a block to that next step. And is it justified in any way in either of your minds? No, I don't. I don't. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I don't think it's justified because I think that if it doesn't apply helping one individual that's been to prison to getting out, you have to go about changing things in certain ways where it's beneficial. So you see a change that's starting to happen. If you see a, a ripple effect of the same thing constantly going on, it's nothing that you're, you're not doing. It's obviously things within the system need to be fixed. So I feel like for me, the system have this way of knowing, okay, well, we keep adding barriers of months just getting out of our system. 
you'll remain in our system. There's no way we will never get out. And I think that's the barrier. I feel like with the justice system, they kind of know of how we can keep a lock up on criminals or individuals that we know that have the criminal aspect or let's build a criminal aspect on them sometimes because sometimes they don't have criminal aspect. They just be faced because you're a black person and you're angry. You're this person that you, you got a lot of trauma built up on you. So I know I can pull anger out of you. It's a lot. It's more than just the trauma of this to justice. They know mechanisms that you use to know like how you saying a person built up with trauma. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I come at them with anger, I can get that trauma out. I can trigger that trauma. It's like triggers. Like they... But yeah. anyway, I'm gonna let you go ahead. That's just how I feel. Yeah, I mean, I I think that laws should, you know, laws are supposed to be in place for a reason, right? Is is there a deterrent to people uh, committing crimes, or is it retributive? Is it just to punish? What's the purpose of the law? And in this instance, there seems to be no deterrent factor at all. There's no evidence that banning people from getting their names changed has any positive effect on public safety. If anything, it has a negative effect on public safety. So to me, the laws as they currently exist don't really have a lot of merit in terms of the reason why we should have these laws, these types of laws in place. I mean, it just, to me, it only seems like it, perpetuates oppression and harm. So I just want to say to our listeners that you can help change this law. Contact your Illinois state senator in Springfield. You can find information on the ACLU of Illinois website in our Springfield wrap-up section, which you can find through the homepage of our site about how to contact your senator. So uh, Isha and Avi, I, I really want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing and talking about this. Isha, I know it, these are never easy things to talk about, and I appreciate the fact that you're so open and honest. Thank you, Ed, as well. And I would just like to say, just please, for those and just hearing this video please just do one since it's hard thing in your heart just to call your senators to please get this blast i really would love that just please and, and, <laughs> i had to say that because i just i need this you don't understand this barrier for me is nerve-wracking thank you so much thanks again to our guests aisha love and abby rudnick for being part of our discussion today now it's your turn to help change this law as we noted earlier House Bill 2542, repealing the 10-year ban we've been discussing, can be passed in the Illinois Senate in the next few weeks. But your senator needs to hear from you. You can find links to send an email message or make a call to your senator's office on our website at www.aclu-il.org make your voice heard on this issue. Talking Liberties is produced by the ACLU of Illinois. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. Kimberly Koziel is our content supervisor. You can, can subscribe to this podcast and rate us or contact us directly at Talking Liberties, all one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this has been Talking Liberties.